All right, good morning, familia. Question. How many of you guys are familiar with that text? How many of you guys have heard at least one or two sermons on that text? How many of you guys think that you know what that text says? Listen, I, I, I don't mean to say that today I'm going to show you stuff that you've never seen in the text before, but I think that that text sometimes has been misused and misapplied in a tiny little thing that it happens to be a very important thing. And as we spend time together this morning, I, I want you to see if you could see if you had ever missed that little thing that happened to be a very important thing. So I need you to do me a favor. Look at the person next to you and say, you better pay attention. Go ahead. All right. Now, the text we're looking at today is known as the parable of the sheep and the goats. And if you have been with us for the last uh, few weeks, we have been looking at chapter 24 and 25 in which Jesus is talking about the second coming, judgment day, heaven, and all of these songs together. But the parable we're looking at this morning is a really interesting uh, text because in there we find three things. We find an exhortation to be obeyed, a reason for, that, for, the, for the exhortation, and the power and how we live that exhortation. There's an exhortation to be obeyed, the reason why the exhortation is given, and the power to be able to fulfill that exhortation. Now, before going into point number one, I want, I want to show you how Jesus is going to make a connection between second coming, judgment day, and how Christians ought to live in light of that. So, for example, right at the beginning of the text in verse 31, it says that Jesus is in his glory. And that he will be coming in his glory. The word glory usually in the original is weight and beauty and magnificence and magnitude. So he's painting this picture that when Jesus returns, it will be a magnificent, beautiful, loud image in which everyone will know that he's returning. And then the text says that he's returning with his angels. And the rest of the Bible tells us that his angels will be worshiping him and giving him glory with everything they have. And then it also says that we will see him sitting in his throne of glory, or glorious throne. And that's an image that tells us that when Jesus returns, and he's the second coming, and all these things is a judgment day, we will face Jesus, not just face to face, but we will face Jesus as the ultimate judge and the ultimate king. That's why that throne is important. And I want you to keep that in mind. But if you notice, the description is almost like, the way I would say it, is like the ultimate party for the saints. It's a celebration. It's loud. I'm not sure if there's going to be food, but because there's going to be Latinos there, for sure there will be food. Now, what makes this celebration even more beautiful is the following sentence when he says that all the nations will be gathered before him. The word nations there is extremely important. In the original is the word ethnos, which is where we get the word ethnicity. But the word ethnos in the text, nations, is a holistic word. 
It's not just talking about that in heaven there will be people of different ethnicities, but that there will be all kinds of people with all kinds of nationalities, all kinds of cultures, all kinds of languages, and all social classes, ethnos. And everyone is worshiping together. But notice that the center of attention is not this multi-ethnicity, multi-culture, nationality, language, all that stuff. The center of attention is Jesus. The unifying theme is Jesus. The common denominator is Jesus. People are not celebrating our differences. We are celebrating that we are worshiping Jesus. But the nations don't stop being the nations. Did you notice? Like in heaven, I'm not going to lose who I am. I'm not going to lose who the Lord made me to be. You are not going to lose who the Lord made you to be. Which is going to be this beautiful celebration of unity in diversity and unity without uniformity. So if you ever heard saying to anybody that in heaven we are going to be the same like a melting pot. That person has never read the scripture. We will be, we will be celebrating unity in diversity and unity without uniformity. There's going to be something beautiful about our differences and also something beautiful about our togetherness. Now, why explain and why you start with all of that? See, because if that's the picture of heaven, that's supposed to be the picture of the church today. If that is what is coming, then that's what believers should embrace today. And if that is true then, no believer, no Christian, no church member should ever have permission to undermine or dismiss anyone regardless of how different they are from us. If that is the picture of heaven, no one as a Christian should have an attitude in which we treat people differently. And as you're going to see in the text, not just because of their ethnicity, but even if they are socially and economically different. Which is what Jesus is going to confront here. What is interesting though is that he uses this image of the sheep and the goats. And what is interesting about that image is that in that context and in that time, when you look at the sheep and the goats together from the distance, they looked exactly the same. And usually they were together all the time. Except at night, in which the shepherd would separate the goats from the sheep because the goats require a warmer, a warmer place to sleep. And you would say, what does that have to do with anything? Well, I think that this Jesus uses this metaphor to tell us something like this. Right now, we all look the same. Right now, we are together. But there will be one day when Jesus returns, when those of us that look the same will see that we're not the same. That some of us are sheep and some of us are goats. And that when Jesus returns, we're going to see who's who. And the only way we're going to know who is who is because of our attitude toward the vulnerable. Especially those that belong to the family of 
So this is what we're going to talk about today. With that then, let's go to point number one, an exhortation to be obeyed. So Jesus is welcoming people into his presence. People is welcome, uh, welcoming people into heaven. And look at what it says in verse 34. The king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. This is a welcoming party. This is Jesus saying to everybody that was in the, in the illustration of the parable on his right, Come, enjoy what I have for you, enjoy what I have prepared for you since the foundation of the world, since the creation of the world. But then Jesus tells them why he's going to make, why he makes this uh, welcoming or distinction. Verse 35. For, can you say for? I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me. Verse 36. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Notice that Jesus is talking about people in need, vulnerable people. The hungry, the thirsty, and, and the ones without clothes are the ones that lack basic needs. He talks about the stranger, someone that is in a place that, has, that is not his home. Someone that has moved from one place to another that most likely lacked the things that the person needs. It's a person that feels out of place. Notice that he talks about the sick. Someone that needs support and someone that needs healing. Notice that he talks about the ones in prison. People that for whatever reason, they're lonely, abandoned, rejected, excluded, or bound to something. And notice that the text says that the people that care for them are the righteous. What I find super interesting is that righteous people, they don't even know that what they're doing is for those guys and also for God. Did you notice that? They love people so much. And they are doing the things that they're supposed to do so much. And they don't even know that as they do that for these people, they're doing it as if they were doing it to the Lord. Look at what it says in verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him, the Lord, when did, we see, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty or give you, or give you something to drink? Can you see? They don't even know in verse 38. When did, we see, when did we see you a stranger and invited you in and needing clothes and clothe you? Verse 39, when did we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you? Verse 40, the king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did of one of the, of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Did you see what's different about how people preach that text? Here we have a group of righteous people. Altruistic people, self-sacrificing people that love people in general. But they have a special concern for the people of God. Brothers and sisters of mine. The text calls these vulnerable people the least of this. 
the least of these within the family of faith. And at this moment, someone may ask a question, well, Hannibal, does that mean that if I'm a believer, I only, I'm only responsible, only responsible toward other believers? And the answer is, of course not. The Bible is full of references in which he calls believers to help and to serve and to love for people in general. We are called to help the vulnerable, to, to provide support, to, to, to care for the ostracized ones. But the argument that Jesus is going to make, and I want you to pay attention here, church, is that it is impossible for us to truly say that we can love people outside the family of faith if we don't know how to love the least of these within the family of faith. I, I, I struggle a ton when people say, I love people more that are outside the church than inside the church. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. It's like if you marry and I say to you, I really like you, but I really hate your spouse. Does that make sense to anybody? See, what makes us think that we can love people well outside the, the walls of the church if we don't know how to love the least of, of these inside the walls of the church? Isn't that what Galatians chapter 6 verse 10 says? As we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Can you say all people? Especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Can you see it? This is the same reason why James in chapter 1 verse 27, when he talks about the church, he says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after the orphan and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And I think that there's a lot of Christian, Christians that know the last part. I'm going to walk in holiness. I'm going to try to be holy. I'm going to keep myself from the pollution of this world. Go green. But then they ignore the first part. That we are called to care for the vulnerable within the family of faith. That we ought to love and serve and care for the least of these within the family of, within the family of faith. Did you know that this is not just a, something that Jesus is making up? And James is making up. And Paul is making up. This was the original design even for the Old Testament people. One of the most confronting texts in the Old Testament is Deuteronomy chapter 15. In which God is talking to the family of faith, to the Israelites, and look at what he says. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in the land that the Lord God is giving you, do not uh, be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Give generously to them and do so without grudging, a, a grudging I think that's pretty clear, don't you think? We have no business in saying that we could love people outside the church if we don't know how to love and serve one another within the church. So let me ask the question. Did you hear that sermon before talking about that? 
That is the piece that we miss. Actually, Jonathan Edwards grabbed the Deuteronomy chapter 15. And if you thought that I preached long, you should read that sermon. 22 pages, man. And look at what he says based on Deuteronomy chapter 15. The most absolute and indispensable duty of the people of God is to give bountifully and willingly for the supply of the wants of the needy. This duty is absolutely commanded and much insisted on in the word of God. Where have we any command in the Bible laid down in stronger terms and in a more absolute urgent manner than the command to give to the poor? This is not socialism, church. This is not Marxism. This is not a liberation theology. This is the Bible. We care for the least of these, especially those that belong to the family of faith. Let me put it this way. If you really want to know where you are in your relationship with Jesus, you got to ask the question, do I really care for the least of these among the family of faith? Do I really care for them? These are the guys on the right of Jesus. There are other guys on the left side of Jesus. In which the guys on the left side of Jesus, they think that this is a suggestion. They think that it's cute to see it in the pages of the scripture, but it's optional. These are the people that behave like Rose in the movie Titanic. You guys remember that movie? How many guys watched that movie? Shame on you. <laughs> you guys, it, 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 it's, a, it's a nice movie. There's other stuff you got to skip, but it's a, it's a nice movie. <laughs> you guys remember after Titanic went down, right? And Rosie is floating in that piece of wood. And she's freezing to death. And then uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, or Jack, is, is in the water. And she's holding on to him. And she goes, Jack, Jack, Jack. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> Listen, people see that, and everyone is like, oh my goodness, what a beautiful scene. That is the most romantic thing ever. Not me. <laughs> I'm looking at Rose, and I'm thinking, girl, move to the side. <laughs> Help the brother up. I think that a lot of believers are like Rosie. We think that he's cute. No, man, as Christians, we make room. We really care for the least of these. We pay attention to the vulnerable. We know that this is a command. We know, as Jonathan Edwards says, this is the most absolute and indispensable duty. This is not optional, church. This is why Jesus says to the people on his left. And verse 41, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. 
If you want to know where your relationship is with Jesus, pay attention how much you care for the least of these, especially within the family of faith. And, and I know that there's got to be like at least one person then asking the question. So Hannibal, are you saying then that if I want to make it to heaven, I have to care for the least of these? Are you saying that if, if I want to gain my salvation, I should care for the least of these? That's salvation by works. And I would say, of course not. Salvation is never by works. It's always by grace alone, by faith alone. Salvation is always a gift. You cannot purchase it and you cannot earn it. It's a gift. So someone may say, so what's the fuss? Why talk about this if it's not a big issue? And I'm going to make the argument that the reason why we should care for the least of this is not just because the Bible says we ought to do it. And it's not just because it's the most loving thing to do. But it's also because it is a reflection of our relationship with God. Actually, the way I could say it is, our attitude toward the least of these is an indicative of our relationship and our attitude toward God. You don't get to separate those two. So let's go to point number two. The reason... For the exhortation. Look at how Jesus talks about these people. Verse 40, to the righteous he says, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of whom? Mine. You did for me. Notice that he doesn't say, you did to me. He says, you did for me. And look at what he says to the wicked on the left. Verse 45. Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Not you didn't do to me, but for me. You know what that means? Two things. That if the believer is truly a believer... You always become like the person you worship. That if we claim to believe in Jesus, that if we claim to know Jesus, that if we walk in communion with Jesus, the more we do that, the more our heart's supposed to be in tune with the heart of Jesus. The more we care about the things that he cares, the more we love the things he loves, the more we hate the things he hates. Isn't that true for any kind of relationship? If you have been with a person for a long time and you love that person, whether you like it or not, you start to look the same. You start to think the same. You start to love the same things. I've been with my wife Mary 22 years, together 29 years, and I know exactly how my wife thinks about certain things. I know how to get in her nerves really quick. And I know how to bring happiness really quick. You know why? Because I know exactly what is in her heart. That's what 29 years do together. And we are loving more and more the same things. Because that's what a relationship is. 
So why would anybody, a believer, think that we love Jesus and we don't love the people he loves? Jesus says, care for the least of these. Because that's where my heart is. And if you don't care for the least of these, you know where your heart is. Can you see how you cannot separate those two? And I think that there's a second reason why Jesus uses this phrase for me. It's because Jesus truly identifies with the vulnerable. Jesus really identifies with the least of these. Did you notice that he didn't say that they were hungry? That they were thirsty? That they were strangers? That they were sick? He says, I was. I was sick. I was hungry. I was stranger. I was sick. I was the one in prison. You know why is that so important? And this is the thing that we got to learn from him. That even though Jesus was omnipotent and self-sufficient, that he does not need anything or requires anything of anybody. That he experiences extreme and complete happiness and joy and peace because he's God. But that when he sees the broken and the vulnerable, he is moved by them. And that's why the word compassion in the Bible is so important. Jesus, by nature, cannot see the least of this and not be moved by that. To the point that he has to do something. B.B. Weirfield, which is another theologian, he said this, compassion is the emotion most attributed to Jesus. It is an inner turmoil, a rolling emotions of pity to the unfortunate, the profound internal movement of his emotional nature. You know what that means? God cannot look the afflicted and look away. Jesus cannot look at the least of this and look away. Actually, a Ray Ortland is going to add to that and says that the person, uh, let, me quote, let me read it, the most understanding person in the universe is Jesus. He does not point fingers, but he opens arms. He sees fallenness in the world and his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering and not away from it. Isn't that a beautiful description of our Savior? He sees the sick and the hungry and the abandoned and the lonely. And he has to do something. He does not walk away. This is why Wayne Grudem, another theologian, he would say that the mercy of God is God's goodness towards those in misery and distress. So if that is the description of our Savior... Why wouldn't that be the same attitude of his church? If we become like the one we worship. If he identified with the least of these. Now, I think that at this time, I, at this moment, I need to get a little bit personal. Is that okay? Okay, you said it. I think that when it comes to the least of these, the poor, the vulnerable, there, there are two 
two attitudes within the family of faith. And I think that both attitudes may be wrong. For the sake of argument, I'm going to call one attitude the traditional view of the list of this. And the other attitude is the modern view of the list of this. All right, just for the sake of argument. I think that people in the traditional view of, of uh, the, on the camp of the traditional view, usually when they think about the vulnerable, the poor, and the sad, the list of this, the tendency is to say something like that or to think something like this. Those guys are probably there because they did something wrong. Either because they were lazy or they were immoral or because they didn't work hard or because them or their parents took the wrong decisions. And for that kind of people, they think that the solution to help the least of this is to teach them, to teach people responsibility, to cultivate morality, and to teach people how to make the right decisions. Have you heard people talk like that? I have in this church. To that group, if they are believers, I would say, you think that there's only sin inside of people, but not outside of people. You are ignoring that there's things outside of us that are broken because we are in a broken world. And if you think that a person is the least of this because the decisions they took wrong or somebody else did, maybe, just maybe, you should read the book of Job. In which someone suffers even when the person is guiltless. Or maybe you should talk to Jesus. That being holy dies on a cross. So my suggestion to you, if that is you, is stop putting excuses in your head. Be compassionate. Care for the least of these. And then figure out what the reason was. Be compassionate. Care for the least of these. And then figure out what the reason was. That would be the traditional view of the least of these. Then you had the modern view, which take. Another approach, which, by the way, we have some of those here, too. This is the people that look at the list of these, and they say, well, the only reason why these people are the way they are is because there are victims of society in the world. We need to change the systems and the structures and people in position of power. Actually, they would say, if we put the people, the list of these in position of power, then everything is going to change. See, if that is you, if you're a believer... Let me confront you a little bit because then you don't believe probably in personal responsibility. See, you acknowledge that there's sin in the world, but you might be tempted to ignore that there's sin inside. That may be the reason why people are the least of these. But my advice to you is don't be so quick to make a judgment. Because we have examples in the Bible of a group of people that were in slavery. And the Lord gave them freedom. And once, once they are free, sin still in their hearts. You know who that was? The Israelites. So my suggestion to you is this. Be compassionate. Be compassionate. Care for the least of these. But you got to see what is the real reason why people are there. 
can you see what the traditional view is not the only solution or the modern view is not the only solution? That's why the Bible provides a, most, a more holistic approach. Care for the least of these and then figure out why is it that they're there. Amen? So the question is this. How do we become people like that? How do we become people that really care for the least of these? Point number three, the power to live it. And if there's one thing that we can learn from the people, the least of these, is this, that they know that they need help. Like the hungry, the thirsty, and the one without clothes, they know, they long for help. The stranger, they long to be welcomed. The sick, they long to be healed. The prisoner, they long for freedom. They know that they need help. And this is what we can learn from them. We are or have been Every single one of us, part of the list of this at one point. Maybe not physically, but spiritually. We were broken people, hungry, thirsty, and without clothes. We were strangers in a different land. We were sick, wanting to be healed. We were prisoners of our guilt and shame and our, and our sin. You have been the least of this. I have been the least of this. How does Jesus fix that problem? He looks at you. He's moved in compassion. He moves toward you and not away from you. You know what's crazy? We have been the least of this, not, because, not just because we have suffered the consequences of other people's sins. But we have been the least of this because of our own sin. And Jesus does not walk away. Instead, instead, he comes in. He draws near. He goes to the cross. And the judge and the king turns, uh, takes upon himself what we deserve. The judge and the king does not walk away. The judge and the king whips with you and whips for you. The judge and the king loves you so radically that he goes to the cross and stays there. Why did he do that? To give you the help that you always wanted. To welcome you into his presence. To heal you because you needed to be healed and to give you the freedom that you deserve, that you wanted, that you craved for. And in turn, he, give you, he gives you his righteousness. See, there has never been a righteous person like the people and the right of Jesus. Not one of us. But Jesus was. And it is the righteous dying for the unrighteous. See, we have been like the people and he's left. And yet Jesus did not walk away. Last week I was watching this video by a singer, uh, Luis Capaldi. He's got this beautiful song, kind of romantic song. It's called Someone You Love. Now, he's got a medical condition, and he's in one of the last concerts. Uh, he's singing this song, and the song is, 
Look at what it says. It's, I'm going under, and this time I fear there's no one to save me. This all or nothing really got away, um, got away of driving me crazy. I need somebody to heal, somebody to know, somebody to have, somebody to hold. So he's singing this song, and as he's singing this song, because of his, because of his condition, he lost his voice. And he couldn't sing. Now the arena in which he's singing, there's thousands and thousands of people, and everyone knows that song. And it almost feels providential that as he's crying out this, people start to sing the song. And then you could see it in his face. He feels so loved, so welcomed, so accepted, so supported. But as a Christian, I cannot help but to think that the only thing many of those people could do for that man is just to sing his song. And I wonder how many of them would actually get in and get dirty and help and touch and clean and heal and visit and cover and love. I think that if there's a group of people that could do that, it's you and I. Is the believers. You know why? Because we know what it means to be in the dirt. And to have a savior that moved in. And got closer. And saved us and cleaned us. Why wouldn't we do the same thing for other people? If you're a believer. You got more than simply a nice song. You were healed, you were saved, you were clean, you were clothed with righteousness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do confess that it's much easier to be the people on the left of Jesus than to be in the right of Jesus. We do confess that at times it is much easier to think about the things I have and I want and I need than to think about the least of these, especially among the family of faith. Lord, the Bible tells us that we are a testimony of your goodness, power, and transformation to this world by the way we live. By the way we love one another, we will show the world that we are your disciples. So please forgive us when we have not represented you well. When we are indifferent instead of compassionate. When we walk away instead of drawing in. When we want to stay clean instead of getting dirty. I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you make of us, Witten Bible Church, Iglesia del Pueblo, a church that really, really loves and cares for the least of these, both inside the church and outside the church. Lord, please do something in us by the power of your Spirit. And we pray for this in the name of Jesus and the church says, Amen.